The Sermon on the Mount. Though it was delivered on the side of a hill one day in Israel, its power, truth, and simplicity have pierced through every century since. His divinely inspired words are not only timeless, they are timely for us. We hope you will join us as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Happy Sunday morning, happy Halloween Eve or uh, Reformation Day Eve, whichever uh, one of those you prefer. And uh, let me invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Jason Hatch. I am the lead and the teaching pastor here, uh, which means I'm responsible for a lot of uh, vision, direction for the church and teaching. About 75% of Sunday mornings, I get the uh, incredible uh, opportunity to open up God's Word. And we've been walking through together the Sermon on the Mount from Christ himself, uh, which I don't know about you. I sure hope this is true of you, but it's been very um, profound and encouraging and challenging to me. Uh, I think as we walk through this sermon, we really get a good grasp of Jesus's heart and how that very uh, specifically plays out for his people. I've told you almost every Sunday, this is a sermon that Jesus gives to his disciples, um, to Christians. And so we're going to start uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And this is what I want to do this morning. I want to read the, the whole text, 21 through 26. Uh, and then we're going to kind of zoom out to like a 30,000-foot view uh, of some things. And then we're going to zoom back in and walk through this text. Uh, because I think if you're like me, you read it maybe once or twice. Like, this is a really confusing text. I'm not sure what, what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Uh, but then after a little bit of time, you kind of uh, dig in and we understand, wow, this is incredibly profound and helpful for us. So that's the goal for this morning. Uh, we're going to read it all together, give some background, and then we'll zoom back in and preach it. So if if you are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, say ready. ready. This is not just God's word. This is from the very specific mouth of Jesus. Uh, it was a verbal uh, declaration that Jesus gave to his disciples that, praise God, God saw fit to write down for us so we get to read from the very uh, heart and mouth of Jesus. He says this to his disciples. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Uh, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." That's the text. That's the heart and the words of Christ. We're going to zoom out. I mean, I mean, way out, like to the beginning of time. Uh, God, we're introduced to him in the opening pages of the Bible that he existed before anything else was. Uh, God was. He is eternal. And he is a relational God. To understand God, you have to understand relationship. Um, that from the very beginning, we believe in the Trinity, right? God exists as one God in three different distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So forever, 
uh, all the way reaching back to eternity past, God has been in relationship with himself. And that is a key part um, to understanding who God is, um, that he's relational. He loves to be in relationships. And so then man comes on the scene. God creates man. Uh, out of all the creation, mankind has a very unique place because God imprinted some of his uh, likeness. We were made in God's image. And so we bear some characteristics that we don't share with any of the rest of creation, um, not horses, not dogs, especially not cats, not not plants, not like nothing else reserves this this incredible label of being image bearers of God. And one of the things that that means is that he put his relationality into our DNA that it is not good for man or woman to be alone. And many of us learned that in a really deep and profound way in 2020 when a lot of people were isolated. And what you're reading is these studies are showing that that's produced some brokenness that's still going on two years later, that we're not designed to be alone because we're image bearers of God. We were made um, to be in relationship, uh, in harmony, and in peaceful relationships with, uh, with God and with one another. So God's relational. We were made in his image. One of the reasons he made us was to enjoy relationships with him and with each other. That's why we're drawn to marriage. That's why we're drawn to friendships. That's why we're drawn to other people because there's a, a craving in our DNA to be connected and to have relationships with others. Um, but then very quickly on this, onto the scene comes sin. And what sin does is sin breaks relationships. It fractured the relationship between sinners and God, and it fractured all of the relationships between people, whether it was Cain who slew Abel or uh, marriage problems that would come out of that or uh, a, a friction between uh, disobedient children and their parents or friendships or employment uh, relationships, whatever it might be. All of those are broken because of sin. Sin, because this is an important thing for you to know. You already know this. Sin separates and, and holiness or godliness draws us together. Sin destroys the relationships that we were created to have and godliness or holiness puts them back into perspective and draws us together. I could run through a lot of different examples, but uh, if you have a person that is just prone to lying, that, that, that lying is going to make it very hard for that person to have a relationship. When people pick up on the fact that they lie, it's going to push that person away from other people. Uh, if somebody is prone to gossip, that's going to push them away. Uh, if they're prone to slander or anger or bitterness or unforgiveness or selfishness, uh, you can take any sin, and if you put it in the heart of someone, it's going to damage every relationship that they have and push them away because sin separates, right? But you take the opposite side of any one of those sins, any kind of holy trait that God has, you put that in and that's going to draw you back in. So if you have someone that's very patient and very kind and very generous and very hospitable, those godly traits are going to draw other people to them. My guess is if we Put those two people out here in front. One that's just all they have is the characteristics of sin. The other is all they have is the characteristics of God. Which one do you want to hang out with? Which one do you want to be friends with? Which one are you drawn to? The one that has these holy traits. So God is relational, man is relational, but those relationships both with God and with others have been fractured to their core because of sin. And so God comes in to try to restore relationships 
and he gives the law, okay? He, he gives the law, which corresponds to his, not only his character, but what he desires for us to have by way of relationships. The law is trying to deal with the sins so that we might understand how right relationships are, spose, are, are supposed to work. Um, I'm going to use the example for a moment of a, of a parent with a child because I think this is probably uh, the most accessible uh, metaphor or illustration that we have uh, to kind of understand and, and get our arms around this idea of God's law uh, trying to lead us towards love and relationships. Um, but you have to get underneath the just the letter of the law to the intent of the law for that to actually happen. So let me kind of walk you through uh, just a, a, a scenario. Let's say that you have two parents, uh, a dad and a mom, and they have some children. And let's just say uh, that those children turn out to be sinners this is all hypothetical, of course. And uh, those kids begin to have friction with one another, and you recognize as they get older that they don't have the peace and the, the tranquility and the harmony in relationships that you desire for them as a parent. So you come up with some what? Some rules, some commands, and you give the commands to the kids, the rules to the kids, and you say, okay, don't kick your sister or don't kick your brother, which in your mind, you think this is great parenting. How could this go wrong? This is so simple. Don't kick your brother. And then you hear screaming from the other room and they come in and you say, what happened? He said, he punched me. I think, okay, okay, don't kick your brother, which I guess you obeyed that, but you punched him. Uh, so no kicking now and no punching. And then a few minutes later, you hear, you hear screaming and you walk in, you say, what happened? He said, oh, she bit me, right? And then all of a sudden you realize that like, okay, you're, you're kind of missing the point of the rules. The point of the rules were not just to not kick or not hit or not punch. What I was trying to do with these rules was teach you how to love each other. Are y'all with me? Any parents in the room? You're like, yeah, that, that's actually what is underneath the, the, the surface of these laws or these commands, trying to get some unity and some good, healthy relationship in the family. But you can obey a lot of the rules and completely miss the relationship. Like you can obey no kicking, no punching, no hitting, and still hate your siblings, right? And, and so like kind of use that because that makes so much sense to us. It's so simple. But I think if we take that and we move it into the spiritual world between us and God, uh, we, we, we kind of maybe forget some of those lessons because we can obey a lot of God's commands externally and completely miss the point and the intent of what God is trying to do with his commands. And a big portion of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus uh, teaching and preaching about true obedience that, that, that truly seeks to get at and live from the heart of God uh, and the actual intent of the law. So a lot of this sermon is him taking the laws that people knew and trying to help us see under the surface what's the actual intent of God. What, what, what's his heart behind this command? And as you, you saw and read last week, uh, Jesus says that as disciples, uh, that our righteousness or the way that we live out God's law has got to exceed that of the Pharisees. It's got to be something that's deeper than just the surface. It's not just the letter of, of the law. It's the heart of the law. That after someone is absolutely forgiven, accepted by God because of what Jesus has done uh, by grace, then we're brought into this relationship and, and what he expects is that we then, with a heart of gratitude and a heart of love and a heart of thanksgiving, 
towards Jesus, we learn to not just obey the, the, the letter of the law and the externals, but truly get after the heart of the law and the internals. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says that we need to have a, a true righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. So th this portion begins, verse 21 starts a section uh, of the Sermon on the Mount that's oftentimes called the six antithesis. Um, there's six different statements where Jesus is going to basically open up with something to the effect of, you have heard it said, okay? Now, th there's a major difference between thus saith the Lord or it is written and you've heard it said. Many, many times Jesus says, it is written, and then he quotes the Bible. But a lot of times he says, you've heard it said, and then you find out that some of the things that people were saying when they were quote unquote trying to quote God in the Bible were not things that were actually in the Bible, right? Some of you, I could say, you have heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. And then I would proceed to say, that's not actually in the Bible, okay? Somebody told you it was, um, but, but it's not. And what Jesus is doing is he's correcting some people. They didn't own a Bible, Okay, they didn't have access to go read God's word together. Many times they were at the mercy of some religious leaders that were giving them information and just saying, this is what God said. Um, this is what God's word says. And if, if I could say this, I think it's true. We probably have a lot more things that have kind of found their way into our, our theology and our view of God and ourselves because somebody told us, uh, and it's not even part of the Bible. So this is still applicable to us. So the, the six antithesis, Jesus is saying, listen, you've heard it said X, and then he's going to do one of two things for these six things. He's either going to say, you've heard this and fix it, say that's not actually what God's word says, this is what it says, or he's going to clarify clarify it. Or he's going to say, and this is under the surface, what God actually meant. And Jesus gets to speak definitively on that because not only was he well-versed in God's word, he is God's word. And so this is the beginning of these kind of six things to try to help them understand truly what God's law is. In Matthew 5, um, towards the end of the, the, the chapter there, verse 33, which, 43, which we're going to get at uh, in a couple weeks, uh, Jesus says this. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay? Now, and then he goes on to correct. He says, like, that's not in the Bible. They got the first half right, and they just made up that second half. So don't believe it. If you go read the Bible, you're not going to find it. He says, I say to you, love your enemy. So that's him saying, you've heard this, and then he fixes it and corrects it. Um, but what he's going to do with this text that we just read is he's not going to fix it. He's going to help us understand under the surface what was God's actual intent in making this command. So let's go back to chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what Jesus says, the first of these six antitheses. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, and then he quotes, this is what they had heard. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, that's a good quote. Okay, that, that, you, you know this, you've read your Bible. In God's word, he says, thou shalt not murder. So this quote is accurate, but what he's going to say, he's gonna pull underneath the surface and say, you can kind of obey that little bitty portion and completely disobey the actually, actual intent of the law. So the command is don't murder. Can we all agree that's probably fairly easy to obey that one just on the surface? Um, but then he gets under the surface and he's going to talk about the, the purpose of that command was much more than just not killing people. It actually is driving us to love. So Jesus reads all these Old Testament commands through the law of love and that's what he is, is doing. And so he explains it this way. 
He says, but I say to you, so here's what you've heard that's true biblically, do not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he puts kind of this, not, not all anger. You're going to find out later that Jesus doesn't say that all anger is sin. There's a righteous anger that's good and right. Um, but this anger that he's talking about that's just aimed at another person probably unjustly, he puts that in the same category as murder. Why? Not because you murdered someone, but, but that the intent of the law, don't murder, was to try to teach us to, to love deeply. So he says, man, who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, if we're honest, how many of y'all have ever been angry with a brother or a sister in Christ? Please raise your hand. <laughs> if not, when we get to the lying portion, you can raise your hand for that one. It's like, Jesus is trying to like say, listen, just because you obey kind of the external, just because you didn't bite your sister doesn't mean you fulfilled the law of its actual intent. So he says, angry with your brother, then he uses the same judgment. You're liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, how many of you ever insulted somebody? You don't have to raise your hand. You probably know where I'm going with this. Um, his brother will be liable to the council or to go stand before the, the legal tribal of the day. And Jesus says, and whoever says, you fool, exclamation point. I, I wish that I could have been sitting to listen to Jesus on many, many times just to hear what kind of preacher he was. Um, because when you listen to, or you read sermons, like there's, a, there's sometimes a lot of emotion and exclamation points to Jesus. So he's like, who knows what he sounded like, but he said, if anybody says you fool, he'll be liable to the hell of fire. Now, how many of you have ever called someone a fool? You're like, not today. Not yet, maybe. The, the word fool there is moros, which very literally translates moron. That's where we get the word moron. If you've ever called someone a, a, a moron, a fool, an idiot, those are all very uh, similar. Like, listen, Jesus goes so deep, and this is why the Pharisees would be so frustrated with him. And if you're honest, you might be as well. He goes so deep into the intent of the law that it's going to leave all of us guilty. Like, even with the basic command of don't murder, we think, oh, I'm fine. Jesus would go so far to say, no, you're you're not. You're not because if you've ever insulted, like used your words to insult someone or to call someone a name or in your heart disliked or hated someone, it's like you still violated the intent of the command. And so that, that leaves us at some pretty, pretty level ground with one another that uh, we're probably not, one, as good at obeying the law as we thought, and two, especially for those who belong to Jesus, it's important that we understand what God is trying to lead us towards in his commands because we can miss them very easily as we obey them on the surface. And so he talks about that our word, just a few things in looking at those, uh, those few words of Jesus is number one, obviously our hearts matter just as much or more than our actions. Okay, our hearts and what's taking place in our hearts towards other people that oftentimes finds its way out of our mouth. Jesus is just as much, has, has as much concern about that as he does with what we actually do. Second thing, you find out that according to Jesus, our words matter a great deal. And this caught me this week, just uh, to be honest and transparent, I thought, well, Jesus probably cares a lot more about my words often than I do. Uh, sometimes we'll let some flippant attitudes find their way in our heart and find their way out of our mouths. And Jesus would like put those in the same category as murder. 
so just an invitation for you to let the Holy Spirit uh, invite him in to not just kind of search around your heart, but search around your words, because that's going to reveal a lot of things in a lot of places where God needs to do some work. Jesus cares about the way that we speak to one another. And you know this, that words carry a great deal of weight. Proverbs says that life and death are in the power of the tongue, and surely they are. Um, third, you find out that anger um, is, is breaking this, um, this, this law that God has given us not to murder because of the same uh, intent. And then I'm not going to spend much time on this, um, but I think it's worth saying that in this text, you find out that Jesus believes hell is a real place, okay? This, that's not the big thrust of this text or his sermon, but uh, I, I think you need to know that because in our culture, like, you know, you, you, we're, try, we're trained and taught to believe that God can't be loving and there's hell, a hell that exists. There can't be a place of eternal punishment. And I'm just saying, if you take that stand, you're, you're taking a strong stand against Jesus. You take all of the authors of the Bible put together, Jesus talks about hell more than all of them combined as a real place of real punishment for people who reject God, reject the gospel, and decide to live their lives on their own. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. I'm just going to say you need to know that. You need to know that even if it's taboo in our culture, even in a lot of churches, well, we don't talk about hell. Well, Jesus did. People need to know that's a real place that you're really going if you decide to live your life for yourself. And what that does for the Christian is as we're reminded that hell's a real place that we've truly been rescued from, what that does is truly help us to understand Christ's love, his sacrifice, God's goodness, that we have been rescued from an actual danger, and that elevates our ability to love and to worship Jesus. Jesus believes in hell. You should too. Let's keep going. Back to the text in verse 23. He says, so, and he's going to give two different examples of how this law of don't murder, which is actually a law to teach us to love each other, two examples of what it might look like. He says, so, if you're offering your gift at the altar, uh, which would have been a very common thing, a lot of people would have been coming from uh, many miles uh, around Jerusalem and perhaps even hundreds of miles uh, from all over the Roman Empire uh, to come and spend some time worshiping at the temple and they would bring a sacrifice uh, to the altar. And he says, if that's you, maybe you've traveled for days, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Okay, so there you are. You've got, your, you've got your sacrifice. You've been marching for days. You get to the temple and you remember, oh, so-and-so has something against me, which I, I think implies that maybe probably I have committed some sin against them and, and they hold that against me. There's some sin that has separated us. Then Jesus says, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What, what, what Jesus is saying is there's a, there's a link between our reconciliation with one another and our worship of God that like the, the gospel is supposed to produce this holiness and unity in our relationships. And he says, if you get to the altar and realize, like I've sinned against that, he's got, he's got a beef with me. I need to leave my altar, march two days back and try to fix it. Try to, uh, Jesus's words, to have some reconciliation with them. So you see Jesus' heart towards dealing with sin and dealing with reconciliation, and that's what he uses as an example to obey this command of not to murder. Let's keep going. Um, the second example, uh, the, really kind of the backdrop of this example is imagine two people that were having this uh, financial feud and they were, go, they were walking to court to try to hand it over to the judge to figure out um, who was right and who was wrong. Jesus says, come to terms quickly 
with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, 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 you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this is Jesus preaching the intent of this law, don't murder. And what he's doing is he's doing it through the lens of the law of love. And what happens is he elevates this law to the character of God in such a way that in some instances, it just seems like it's out of reach. Definitely for the Pharisees, what Jesus said was the actual commands. They, they, they felt like it was so out of reach that it was better to shut Jesus up and to murder him and crucify him than to listen to what he was saying about the law. Not because he violated the Ten Commandments, but because he elevated them really out, out of the Pharisees' reach. So here's a couple questions that I have for you. Number one, would invite you to think about your heart. How is your heart doing when it comes to murder, when it comes to anger, when it comes to insulting someone else, when it comes to calling someone um, names? Maybe it never comes out. Maybe it's just something that takes place in your mind, in your heart. I would encourage you to think about that and to confess that and to repent of that sin. That's violating God's intent of the law. The law is, dis- is designed to lead us to love. So what is it for you? What is it that, that you find in your heart that actually the commands are to lead us to, to love one another, um, not to hate one another? Second thing, is there anyone in your life that you need to reconcile with? Maybe there's someone, maybe you've done nothing, they just have something against you, or maybe you know deep down, like deep down, you know you've done something um, to sin against them, and you know they have something against you. Jesus would say, like, that's a big deal. You need to go deal with that. You need to go find them and confess if there's something you need to confess and ask for uh, reconciliation. Reconciliation seems to be a big deal to Jesus. And then number three, this is an encouragement I have for you. If you're a believer in Christ and you're seeking to uh, obey God, to understand what he's commanded us to, to do and then to do it, I would encourage you to think about and to study and try to understand not just the letter of the law, but the intent behind it. Like this, back to the analogy, this would be my kids, not just like not, not biting, not hitting, not, not kicking, but truly thinking like, what are these laws actually trying to get me to do to, oh, to love my sister, to love my brother, to treat them as uh, I want to be treated. I'm not going to go through a ton, but I will give you a couple. Uh, because as we're thinking through trying to obey, it's important that our hearts engage the true intent. So let's think of, we've already talked about murder. Right? Some of you are like, I was doing really well. I haven't murdered anybody. Well, think about the intent. It's to, it's to, to, to teach us to love one another. Uh, what about Sabbath? Okay, it's very easy to just honor the Sabbath, take a day off, and completely miss the point uh, of the command. That the command is a time for us to rest physically and to rest spiritually and be reminded that Jesus did everything for our salvation. We bring nothing to the table. It's a spiritual rest from our works. That's what the intent of the law is. Um, What about fasting? Uh, Any of you fast? I was not taught when I was growing up to fast. I really don't know why that was, but in my 20s, I just kept reading about it in the Bible and thought, this is probably something I should do. And so I did my first fast. I did a three-day fast, and I'd read a bit and prepared a bit. And towards the end of that fast, when it was all done, I kind of realized, like, oh, like, well, somebody asked me. They said, well, you know, what did you learn? Did you connect with God? Did you pray? What were you reading? I was like, oh, 
I just didn't eat. <laughs> like, I'm just really hungry because there were three days that I, I didn't eat, but I didn't, I wasn't like sitting down and having some focus time to pray and to meditate and to read, which is kind of the intent of fasting. It's not just to go without eating, it's to press in spiritually um, to God. Uh, what about coveting? Uh, why is this command given to us not to covet or desire something that someone else has, which is rampant in Midland, Texas? It's rampant everywhere. Like that's what all of the advertising around us is designed to do, to teach us to be unsatisfied with what we have and to want something that someone else has. What is the intent behind that? You can't truly love someone if you want their stuff and don't want them to have it. So even underneath that command is this, um, this, this law of love or, or even giving. And we've been talking with our kids recently about what it means to, uh, to give your money. Uh, and, and obviously there's some questions where like, what, th this is my money. Why, why do I need to give some of it uh, back to God? And we're trying to show this link between you can give money financially and still not really fulfill the, the heart of God behind it. Like, th you know this, like money is not in and of itself anything valuable. It's a placeholder for what we value. And so even when you give, financial giving is designed for us to have like a moment where we say, God, I love you more than I love keeping everything for myself. I love other people so that I want the, uh, the, the church to be able to uh, operate and do ministries and pay staff and like even underneath this giving command, it's, it's, it's to teach us to love. Because God says, like, your money and your love, they're linked together. The, 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 where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So if we're going to learn to love, it's going to include financial giving as well. You can run through the whole list. In fact, in Matthew 22, someone comes to Jesus, and out of the hundreds of laws and the Ten Commandments, they say, what is the most important one? And they're still thinking on the surface, right? And so Jesus is so wise, so profound, and he says, Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all of the law and the prophets. I'm assuming you've, you've heard that before. Maybe we need to be reminded of that before. What, what is Jesus communicating with that? He says, like, listen, if, if we just loved God purely and loved others purely, there would be no need for any other commands because that's the heart of all of them. Every command was given by God... To, to represent his character and to produce unity among people in relationships. And so he says, everything is summed up in this, just love God and love people. And then I want to give you a couple things about Jesus and how he fits into this and fulfills this to turn our affections towards him. Because sometimes then there's a lot of focus on us trying to know what all the laws are, understand them, and just do our best to obey them. And a couple things you need to know about Jesus is, number one, um, Jesus is love, okay? God gets to define love. First John talks about this uh, an incredible amount, that one of God's characteristics is that he is just just defined by love. Jesus shares that because Jesus is God. Jesus is the definition of love. We know that. Number two, uh, he fulfilled the law. We talked about this a week or two ago. This doesn't just mean that he took a day off every Saturday. He perfectly fulfilled the intent of the law, meaning he perfectly loved God the Father and he perfectly loved everyone else around them. He fulfilled the, not just the letter of the law, the intent of the law. And then number three, you need to know this, that he perfectly has, has perfectly loved you. 
Not just generically is Jesus love and did he fulfill the commands, but through the cross, Jesus perfectly loved you. Nobody else has loved you that way. Nobody else's love towards you has been absolutely perfect. But Christ's love for you, his, uh, his affections towards you, his sacrifice for you on the cross has clearly demonstrated that his love for us is perfect. I want to invite you to worship him that way. Like that's the source of worship is something that we have received. We love because he first what? He first loved us. And so for those who belong to Jesus, the commands were not made right with God based on the commands. Jesus made us right with him. But to have a true righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees is to get after the intent and the heart of God behind the commands, to learn to truly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to truly love one another in a way that gets down even to our thoughts and our words. That's what Jesus is preaching. You've heard it say, don't murder, but I'm saying this is a tool to teach us to love one another. Let me invite you to bow your head to pray with me. Not just to pray with me. I want to pray for you. I want to pray over you. But I want to invite you in these next few songs to, uh, to truly worship and thank Jesus for loving you perfectly before we even knew what we needed. He was giving it. And that fuels our worship and that fuels our obedience. Jesus, love you. Because you first loved us. Father, I feel like there's a way in which this sermon can be so very basic. Maybe we gloss over it. But, Father, there's another way in which this is so incredibly profound. It changes us to the core. Makes us a little more humble about our need for salvation. Makes us a a lot more grateful about what you actually accomplished to fulfill all of God's laws makes us grateful for what you've done for us, in us, to us, and through us. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to one, remember that our righteousness comes from you as a gift. Um, But two, Father, I pray that you would help us to truly live lives that are in accordance with your, your character and your holiness and your commands. God, help us to get under the surface of the commands to the true intent of your heart when you gave them. Father, in these next few moments as we sing, God, I pray our words would come from hearts that have been changed and forgiven. Father, if there's someone in this room this morning that has never truly understood their need for forgiveness and for salvation, they've never embraced the fact that you died in their place for their sins and that you would trade up with them, that you take upon their sin and give them your righteousness just simply by grace through faith. I pray that you might pull them in, draw them in, woo them in, that your spirit might convince them that Christ is in fact the savior that they need. And I pray that they might fall on you uh, for your forgiveness. God, would you make someone new this morning, bring them into the kingdom, forgive them, adopt them, uh, and do the work that only you can do. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your sermon on the mount. We thank you for the fact that it still stands and it's still true and helpful for us. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.